We're moving through the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read this morning Mark chapter 15. Mark is the shortest gospel. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there's four books that specifically give an account of Jesus' life and teachings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. And we've been going through the book of Mark for about a little over two years now. And we're just getting to the final two chapters. And this is a packed one today. So Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. I'll read through it. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. So someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So if you read commentaries or you ever do even kind of a condensed Bible study through the book of Mark, you'll hear the argument that these verses in particular represent kind of the climax of Mark's gospel because a number of things transpire over these verses that left the first generation of Christians reading this uh, kind of in a state of shock and awe, breathless, likely. For us, however, this part of Jesus' story is pretty familiar, and so it's actually a challenge to enter into the text in a way that kind of recaptures that sense of, wow, that kind of jaw-on-the-floor response. I found this good quote, that summarizes our state by N.T. Wright. He said, most of the words we try to use, as T.S. Eliot wryly observed, slip and slide and won't stay in place because we're too used to them. As indeed Christians are too used to the story of Jesus' death in general. We need regularly to find ways of making this story strange again so that we can hear it once more as though it were new to us. And I love that idea of making the story strange and shocking and awe-inspiring and, and visceral. So let's pray that as we look at this text this morning, that's what God will do. God, as we move through this text, I pray that your glory and your goodness and your holiness would be on full display. And for hearts that are far from you here this morning or who are listening to this, um, I pray that this would be just received as the best and most powerful good news they have ever heard. And for those of us who have put our trust in you and who have maybe just become accustomed to this, would you use this to wake us up, to open our eyes, to, you know, we invite you to, to, to place a little shock and awe on us, Holy Spirit, to use this to rattle our cages a bit, to become fully alive and fully awake to your glory. Amen. Okay, let's walk through this passage. Verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This is important. Details are always important, especially in the Gospels, but generally in Scripture. Whenever there's a detail, it might not mean anything to us. You do a little bit of digging, and you begin to realize, oh, there's some layers of meaning happening here. A few verses ago in Mark, we learned that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. Some of your translations will say the third hour, third hour. Um, hour being the way that, uh, that was aligned to kind of Jewish timekeeping. 
all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make sure to emphasize the point that the events of Jesus' death take place in the dark. In Mark's Gospel, when, when you read it with eyes to see it, you'll see there's kind of an escalating darkness as you move, certainly from chapter one all the way through to the crucifixion, but especially once Jesus gets into Jerusalem, right? You have, as his ministry grows, there's more and more darkness kind of colluding around him. Then as he enters Jerusalem, that gets intensified, and Mark spends a lot of his gospel just focused on the last week. Then you get into the last 48 hours, and you have betrayal, you have denial, you have beatings, you have injustices and unfair trials, and now he's been crucified. And now, three hours into his crucifixion, this inexplicable, mysterious darkness kind of settles over the whole land, but I think the inference is it's kind of centered upon Jesus. And this is mysterious. You might read some commentaries or Bible studies that try and explain it away using naturalistic causes. Uh, some theories are, well, maybe some kind of eclipse, or uh, I've even heard sandstorm of some kind. But you do any amount of uh, analysis and evaluation of those things, that's pretty clear. None of those even just hold up from a rational point of view. This is a clearly a supernatural gathering darkness, which makes sense when you consider how often in the Bible darkness is connected to God's judgment. So just two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. In the Old Testament, minor little, little book, Amos, fifth chapter, God is speaking to his people about the coming day of the Lord, capital D, this day when God is going to make things right and set things right and redeem his people and kind of bring to fulfillment all of the momentum of Israel's story. But he says this, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear as though he entered a house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And then that theme of God's judgment and darkness um, coming together gets repeated in the New Testament a few times, but one pretty explicit place is in Jude, 13th verse of Jude, where Jude is talking about the fate of fake pastors, fake teachers, false pastors, false teachers. He says, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, their wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Blackest darkness will be the judgment that they face. So in scripture, broadly speaking, God's blessing and acceptance is characterized by light and brightness because you're being brought into the presence of the glorious king and God. But to face God's judgment is to face darkness and death. And so there's a spiritual storm cloud of judgment that is forming and settling on top of the land focused on Jesus. God's supernatural judgment against sin and evil is being collected, as the children learned during Lent, all being collected together and focused into a particular cup of suffering, into a particular locality, and it's being offered to Jesus to drink. This is important, even though it's a quick little line, darkness covered the whole land. It's, it's a very clear portent of divine doom and destruction that is imminent. 
What is going on? Again, God is gathering up the totality of judgment and wrath against human sin and evil, and he's going to pour it out on Jesus. Now, I understand there's a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with the idea of a God who is wrathful or judgmental or angry. Those are all characteristics that we associate as character flaws to people. People who, who never display those things are virtuous. And therefore, if God were to be wrathful and angry and punitive and even be willing to punish to a great degree sin and evil, that somehow to many people's sensitivities seems a bridge too far in terms of not a God of love, not a, God, not a trustworthy God, and certainly not a glorious God that I would choose to worship. But if that's your emotional default, I want you to just press into the implications of that view. Because essentially what you're committing yourself to is believing in a God who is loving and just, and you can put whatever other virtuous words are there, non-judgmental, accepting, inclusive. But what that will lead you to is a God who will never, ever, ever seriously deal with sin. You'll always have a God who is staring with all the information, we only stare at human evil and suffering with our perspective. God has the total perspective and just kind of says, yeah, it's not great, but it's okay. It's okay. And he's gonna do that for uh, catastrophically malicious uh, stuff like genocide all the way down to your personal sin. He's just gonna say, I, I just love you. Who am I to judge? See, if God is holy, which means he is, his light and his purity of his goodness is so acute that he can't, um, you know, John says there's not even darkness in him. It's not like a yin-yang thing or God's like 95% good and 5% bad, just to kind of balance things out a little bit. If his holiness is so pure, if his good goodness is so pure, if his loving kindness is so white hot, then God has to despise hate sin, hate evil. He has to want to deal with it and not just let it go on perpetually forever. Of course, a good and loving and holy God, if he's that good and pure and love and holy, he's, his character will by necessity, uh, by necessity drive him to deal with sin in a way that is just and in a way that is loving and in a way that is good but he's going to want to deal with sin. He's going to want to figure out a way how to deal with human sin and evil so that there's a possibility for his image bearers who have lived in rebellion to him, not listening to him, doing their own thing, deciding what's right and wrong for themselves, deciding who they will make their God, maybe even themselves, that those same image bearers have a chance to be reconciled to God and to have the fundamental issue which is this corruption and poison of sin that stands between, within us and stands between our true fellowship with God to deal with that. And that's why Jesus has come, to put himself in our place of judgment. He voluntarily says, I, as the second person of the Trinity, I will come and bear the wrath and all the judgment for sin on myself. The supernatural doom is not something that God is inflicting on Jesus or the Father is inflicting on the Son. It is something that the Father and the Son and Spirit together from eternity past have said, if this is what has to be, this is the, this is the plan, this is what we're going to do. 
And this is the moment where Jesus, we see Jesus fulfilling his ultimate vocation to die as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the supernatural doom reaches its apex at three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, verse 34, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a cry of obviously of desperation, but it's also a quotation. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses one and two are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus quotes. The rest of it is, why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Psalm continues, but that's the only uh, part I want to highlight right now. What we're seeing here at the cross is a moment of rupture between God the Father and the Son. See, all four Gospels, especially John's Gospel, you'll notice this in John, um, Jesus, all, all the gospel highlights, but John specifically highlights the very close connection and communion that Jesus, um, when he's talking about his relationship with the Father, he's always talking about I and the Father are one, or I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. You know, I, I'm just simply obeying what the Father has told me. There's this tremendous emphasis on the communion and connection that Jesus has with God the Father. But here Jesus is crying out from having experienced the devastation of having that communion radically severed. This is a moment of rupture between God the Father and Jesus. Verse 35, when those who were standing near heard it, they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. So someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And John 19 says, when he had received the drink. So Jesus drinks it. And if you're paying attention the last few weeks, you're going to say, hey, wait a second. Didn't someone offer Jesus a drink at the start of the crucifixion? And he said, no. Why is he saying yes to this one? And the answer is uh, fairly straightforward. The first drink that Jesus is invited to take and he rejects is wine mixed with myrrh, which acts as our narcotic, which is going to dull Jesus' pain receptors um, and make uh, elements of the crucifixion less intense. So Jesus is very clearly, by rejecting that, saying, no, I'm moving into the full, I have to bear the full doom and destruction. And I am not going to dull my senses. I'm going to, I gotta drink this cup of suffering. I gotta, it's mine to drink. I gotta bear the full weight of this. The second drink that Jesus accepts is wine vinegar, which is, which has no narcotic properties but it actually was used to sometimes sustain people because it helped to hydrate during um, phases of the body where there's extreme dehydration and certainly would allow you to at least um, be refreshed enough to kind of hold into the next phase of the crucifixion. Because again, remember, for most people, crucifixion is days. It's not just a number of hours like it happened to be with Jesus. It's, we're talking about days. And I think that one, one of the things that's important here to recognize in that is when Jesus takes this second offering of drink, what he's saying is, um, I've drank almost all of that cup of suffering, but there's a little bit more to go. And I, I need something to sustain me so that I can go right to the very end. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tapping out at 98%. I'm drinking that cup of suffering down to the dregs. And it's also a tip of the hat 
to verse 15 in Psalm 22, where the original author, David, is writing prophetically, well, kind of probably metaphorically about his own experience, but it ends up being prophetic about Jesus' experience, where he says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. So Jesus might literally be receiving it just so that he can get enough moisture in his mouth to, in John's gospel, have his final words be, it is finished. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So Jesus dies at 3 p.m. Jewish ninth hour. And again, that is, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, if you're like me, I didn't grow up in the church, and then when I did become a Christian for the first five or six years, most people were like, the New Testament's really important, learn about Jesus, love God, love other people. The Old Testament, though, pretty crazy. Uh, you can go there if you want, but it's like, it's the old part, so just stick to the new. And um, certainly books like Leviticus and some of these books that talk about sacrifices, it's kind of gobbledygook and just, yeah, you don't need to worry about it. So my understanding of the Jewish sacrificial system was really stunted until I went off to Christian University and then began to discover authors like Ray Vanderlan and Lois Taverg and a few different people that have really helped me put some of these pieces together. Um, one thing that everybody would have known in this context that a lot of us don't is something called the Tamid sacrifice. Has anyone heard of, just heard of, the Tamid sacrifice, T-A-M-I-D? Raise your hand high. Nobody. Okay. You're in good company. I didn't until six days ago, so it's all good. In Exodus 29, verses 38 to 46, God gives instructions, and they're kind of vague, for, a daily, for the conditions of daily worship and what God wants to institute as part of Israel's offering in the tabernacle. The priesthood is going to offer two male lambs, perfect, one year of age, as a continual burnt offering. And this is the tamid sacrifice. Tamid is a Jewish word that means daily or continual or perpetual. It's always happening. And so what happens is, in Exodus 38 and 39, God says, this is what you are to offer on the altar regular, regularly each day. So this is not a particular kind of offering. This is just a standing thing that happens every day for, for all time for the Jewish people. Two lambs, a year old, one offer in the morning, one, one other at twilight. And so what happens is, if you, if you ever read all these different sacrifices, and I know for me, I read them and I'm like, the logistics around how does this happen? Um, what or, is there an order? Because sometimes it doesn't really say that, it just kind of says, this is the sacrifice you are to offer. But it doesn't actually say, you know, 9.15, there's not like this all day order of service, like maybe we would think would be helpful for us to know it. It just kind of has these sacrifices. Um, the, the Tamid sacrifices acted as kind of bookends. They were the temple um, actively sacrificing open for business, open and close. You sacrifice one lamb in the morning, put its carcass on the sacrificial wood pyre. It burns all day, smoke rising up to God. Then what you do is you do all the other sacrifices after that first Tamid sacrifice. You bring your grain offering and your sin offering and your guilt offering and whatever, burnt offering, different offering, the peace offering. People and priests, depending on the time of year and any particular offerings, 
and then at the end of the uh, sacrifice day, the work day, we might say, you do the second lamb. It's killed. It's laid on the altar, and then it slowly smolders all night long. And so the idea is that between the first and that second time, there's kind of active sacrifice happening, but between the second all the way overnight when the priests are off duty and when the temple um, is closed for business, so to speak, there are still, there's still a sacrifice being offered to God. There's still smoke going up to the heavens. So the Tamid sacrifice ensures that 24-7 there is smoke rising as an offering to God in response to God's commands in, in Exodus 38. It happens a few other times. happens again in Daniel. Daniel is a few more times where God institutes this. So it kind of, it's sort of like a sacrifice sandwich. Start, add your different layers of sacrifice, then you get to the end, and then we're done. And maybe you can see where this is going, and it's pretty interesting because, again, people in this context know this. You read Philo, you read Josephus, you read the Mishnah, you read, uh, I think it's in 2 Maccabees. There's at least four or five extra Jewish sources. They're not exactly sure. There's some debate on when and how these were offered in, the, in Solomon's temple, but when the second temple gets rebuilt and it becomes Herod's temple, the Tamid sacrifice happens at the third and the ninth hour. 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's the temple's active sacrifice window. So hopefully you can kind of see where this is going and how cool God is. When God offers the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus is crucified and suffers and eventually gives up his life during the Tamid sacrifice window. And that would have instantly given a clue, certainly to Jewish hearers, the implications of Jesus' death. Because what it would have meant, certainly for them, and this is why none of you brought a lamb here this morning, is because Jesus has come to die as a one-time, perfect, fully sufficient sacrifice for human sin. And that because of his divine perfection, that sacrifice will act as a tamid, a perpetual sacrifice that perpetually atones for sin for those who are in him. They will be relieved from having to atone for their own sin because this high priest has created an eternal sacrifice once and for all. Hebrews 10, the book of Hebrews has a lot of interplay with the book of Exodus. If you're ever reading those two books, try and read them side by side because they will inform each other. Hebrews 10 talks a lot about the old temple, the old high priest, the new temple, the new high priest, how the old was a shadow of the former. Now in Christ, we see what it was all about. The writer says this, the law, God's instructions to Israel, were just a shadow of the good things to come, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, meaning the law, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But, but those sacrifices, the whole temple thing, are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then a few verses later in Hebrews 10, day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. 
which can never ultimately take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so now that this true and better, continual, perpetual, everlasting sacrifice has been made, the temple and its function for the people of God is kind of instantly and radically transformed. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Again, this is important. Uh, Tristan, do you want to put up the, get the cutaway of the temple? This is about as high resolution as I could get. It's not super, but I wanted to give you a sense of the scale of once you move from the Gentile courts to the men, male courts, and then here's the actual temple itself, and you're moving into the temple. Um, that checkered, uh, large checkered uh, thing in the middle, that's, the, that's the, uh, the curtain, or the veil, sometimes it's called, that separated um, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Um, you can see how big it is. And, you know, there's a little bit of differentiation on the historical sources about how big it is, but it ranges 60 to 80 feet. It, it's pretty massive. Like, it's an awe-inspiring thing. It's not like if we just curtained off this little door and <laughs> this little veil got torn. We read this, and we're like, that's kind of neat. This is very clearly, just like the darkness, a supernatural act. This is, you, you can't, this isn't gospel. You can't quote me on this. I've done a lot of digging into this. But Jewish sources at the time talked about the curtain as being as thick as a human hand. Now, that might have been some exaggeration, but it was, it might have been kind of Jewish hyperbole, but it clearly was trying to indicate that this was something substantial. It wasn't like tissue paper. And this thing gets torn, not from the bottom to the top, which theoretically could happen if you had people maybe cutting it and then ripping it apart. It gets cut from top to bottom. It gets torn. This is a supernatural declaration by the Father that something has radically changed. And it isn't long before the first Christians connect these dots. The temple and its function is kind of, it's, it's over. It's, it's finished. Its purpose has been fulfilled and its purpose has been taken over because of what has just happened. Because from now on, access to the presence of the living God is open to anybody through Jesus. Now, we hear that and we're like, yeah, I know that. We welcome to God. That is not the way Jewish people thought. There's concentric circles where God is everywhere. Yes, God is omnipresent, but there are concentric circles of intensity. And only those who are righteous and cleansed and pure and then only one of those people, the high priest, once a year can even enter the Holy of Holies. So you understood that there was a distance, and there always would be a distance, because God is God and you are a sinful human being. And your atonement through sacrifice is still limited. It's not full atonement. You don't get to enter the Holy of Holies. That's only for a certain class of people, the priestly class. But now... There's no longer a spiritual hierarchy. There's no longer a priestly class. There's no, no longer access to people based on ritualistic righteousness or purity or cleanliness. Through Jesus, anybody from anywhere can be forgiven and restored 
into right relationship with God, can be assured of eternal life here and now. Through Jesus, anyone can be forgiven, restored, and assured of eternal life here and now. And by placing your faith in this high priest, not just believing it, yeah, I guess that's true, but by saying, my Lord and my God, I give my life to you. You gave your life as a sacrifice for me, I'm going to give it as a sacrifice for you. No more exile, homecoming, no more distance, no more limitation in our relationship with God. This is, I mean, this is really radical stuff. And not from a political point of view, but maybe you can understand from a religious point of view how this sounds like an insurrection. It sounds like a complete overthrow of an entire status quo, which God instituted, but God is saying, that wasn't my end game. There was a holding pattern meant to bring us to a better place. Now the better place has been opened through Christ. And now we don't need this holding pattern anymore. It was good. So never talk about it like it's bad. The law was good, but it can't ultimately regenerate and save you. Only the Holy Spirit through Christ can. And then we can still learn from the law. We can learn from practices of the temple. But but they aren't necessary anymore. We don't need that. See, this is the part about Christianity that doesn't play nice with the idea that, like, well, all religions kind of teach the same thing. Like, they're all kind of different riffs off the same basic melody. Because this part of Christianity should help people to think about, well, what it does is it, um, it represents a death to the idea, what most people think of as religion. Now, I know there's different ways you can interpret religion, but most people think of religion as a system of rituals and practices through which I can be better, become a better person, become more righteous, atone for sin, earn salvation. You know, different cultures and different religions have different spins on attain enlightenment. But it's essentially self-focused. It's these are things that I need to do, and if I perform them, if I execute them properly, if I'm obedient to them, then I get kind of like divine rewards from God or the gods or the universe. And so religion is a process through which I strive and achieve something. And what we're seeing here with Jesus on the cross is exactly the opposite. Like it's, 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 you couldn't get more 180 than this. The good news is that, the good news that Christianity offers is not that God has come to give you a new set of rules so that if you perform really well, he will love you and accept you. It is that you actually don't have to merit or earn or perform or achieve or strive in order to access the forgiveness of God, the love of God, eternal life with God, the blessings of God. Not only do you not have to, you actually, it's going to be a fool's game to try and go that route anyways. You're not going to be able to. What, so what happens is God has come to bear your judgment and now open up a new way so that through faith, by grace, not religious self-improvement, we can have access to God. And out of that new relationship, that forgiven, restored relationship, do we grow in righteousness? Should we be pursuing loving God and loving other people? Should we be putting the death sin? Yes. But it's not in order to earn something or hope that if I do that, God will let me into heaven or God will love me more if I do these things. All of those things have been secured in Christ the moment that we've put our faith in Jesus. Now we live out of the security of that relationship. You're free from having to live with any kind of anxiety 
even when you fail, you know that the judgment for that sin has been absorbed into Jesus. And so we can go to God boldly and say, I'm sorry for this, God. I have sinned. Change my heart. Let's keep going. You're never having to worry that, oh, maybe if I, like, I know God loves me, but if I sin like this much or if I do that kind of sin, then God's going to like unlove me, unadopt me. No, you are secure in the love of Christ. And you are redeemed into a new temple. See, the temple in Jerusalem wasn't God's end game. It's a shadow, Hebrew says, that was pointing to the better things to come. A greater temple. What is the greater temple that the New Testament talks about? Anybody? Us. It's the church. You are now the temple. You, meaning yous, you all, you plural. There is a sense in which, yeah, our bodies are the temple because the Holy Spirit resides in us. But of first importance is the idea that you, as the gathered people of God, you're the new temple. You're the place where God's spirit and love is acutely experienced. And that means there's no longer a geographical boundary to where God's presence and love can go. But God has seeded his temple all over the world, all over Nelson, all over Canada, all over Ecuador, all over Japan. God is seeding a new temple, a new people, who've been liberated from the threatening darkness of God's wrath and judgment. They've been freed, they've been cleansed, they've been empowered by the Spirit of God to live into light and into liberty and into love. They're empowered by the Spirit of God to bring God's loving kindness to bear on the world, to be the image bearers that we were meant to be. Is this new temple perfect? No. Is it full of people who are always making the right decisions and um, you know, all these platitudes, you know, always living into liberty and love and light? Nope. Paul has to write an entire chapter to the Corinthian church to stop suing each other within the church. So this isn't like romantic, you know, this romanticized view of what it means to be the church. But God is making a new people who are learning together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, who are learning how to love one another and love the world as God intends. So we're not perfect, but like Hebrew says, we have been per- perfected from God's point of view. And now what we're doing is we're learning to live into our actual identity, which is a saint in Christ Jesus. That's our mission. This church, every other church in Nelson, any church that takes scripture and it's called seriously, I mean, there's lots of churches that don't, but this church, I think, does. And that's why this church and yes, these people, but I mean like the institution, like the actual like, hey, we're like a gathered church and we, we're not just this kind of vague, oh, like anybody who just loves Jesus, like the people who show up and are invested in this community and want to love God, love each other, and then love people out through this community. That's why churches are important. Like localized little temples. Not because they are the end all and be all, because the temple isn't the end-all and be-all of the Christian life. The end-all and be-all of the Christian life is living your entire life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Monday through Sunday, and all that you do, learning to change and adjust how you think, talk, and act so that God is glorified. That's the end. But a huge part of the means is being significantly, significantly connected 
to a local church. That's why in the very same chapter where the writer of Hebrews talks about old temple, new temple, old high priest, new high priest, shadow, this is the reality. Uh, This is the holding pattern. This is what God wants. You find these words. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you say the day approaching. See, Jesus died, but not just so that your sins could be forgiven. Jesus died in order to make you a building block in a new temple. And that's one of the reasons I am so bullish about getting involved in a church. It's not because I'm supposed to say that or I have a vested interest. Trust me, if this church went from 100 to 200 people, my life does not become easier. It is in my best interest to keep this steady state because then I, the, the system will kind of calibrate and my job in life will be relatively easy compared to continual growth. This is not simply the right answer or me saying this because it will make my life easier. It won't make our life easier, but this is our mission and our calling. We're to meet together in a context where we continually learn how to live as forgiven, redeemed, new creation creatures through worship, the word, prayer, thanksgiving. And there's lots of things that Christians are called to, but gatherings like this are the foundation of a life lived in response to our calling in Christ. They're really, really important, and God uses them powerfully. Here endeth the rant, but not the lesson. I've got three paragraphs left. I told you it was doozy. We're almost done. If, if you needed, if you needed to end, um, this is something I think is so awesome about the details that Mark gives. If you need a note of inspiration and encouragement, that Jesus' death really does honestly open up a new horizon of possibility for this life and the life to come. And if you want a picture that dismantles any notion in your mind that there might be people out there who, no matter what happens, they're, they're going to stay hardened towards God, then you need to read and memorize and look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark opened his gospel with the declaration that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the next time that statement is said as a confession from a human being, and it is said by a Roman, a stone-cold pagan. A centurion, if you know anything about the Roman military structure, a centurion is a soldier who threw basically uh, complete barbarity Um, and domineering in power has asserted himself as kind of an alpha male of a pack and they give them a certain level of uh, jurisdiction, militarily speaking. A centurion is a battle-hardened, hard... I mean, this is a man who has seen a lot of death. He's watched a lot of people die. This is... You couldn't have a harder... Nothing phases this guy. And he sent a lot of people to their death. And he sent a lot of people to their death in extremely brutal, inhumane ways. And that's what's gotten him to where he is. This is a brutal soldier of war. It is not a priest. It is not a disciple. It's not a religious scholar. It's not even a God-fearing, pious Jew. 
It is a hardened, unspiritual, anti-God, sin-saturated, certainly from a Jewish perspective, lost cause. This is someone who is absolutely worthy of God's darkness and judgment and wrath coming to bear on them. Without a doubt, you ask 100 Jewish people, is this guy, should this guy be condemned to that kind of judgment? Oh, absolutely. But he is given a revelation of the truth. Mark never tells us what he does with it. And I think that's intentional. Because at some point in your life, you're going to be given a revelation of the truth. And it's going to happen. And it can happen for you. But you've got to look at the cross. You've got to look at how Jesus died and take a long, loving look. See how he died. Understand why he died. And know that in him you can find perpetual forgiveness and love, light, hope, and life. Let's pray. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for grace. Thank you for these words that we string together, but they're just, they're, they come up short, God. Jesus may, the response in this next song is if we just stand and sing. May we sing from a place of deep gratitude and surrender. And may we sing with the intention to look at the cross and to have this love transform our lives and hearts, to let this gospel do its work inside of us by the Holy Spirit and then send us out into the world to love others in the way that you loved us, self-sacrificially, generously. We love you, God. Help our worship to you be sincere and open-hearted and faithful. Amen.